Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. the 24th of February. You know, every once in a while, I just feel like I should tell you how honored um, and joyful I am to have the opportunity every weekday morning to um, to talk with you. So thank you. It's a privilege and an honor um, to be included in your day. And so I just want to be sure that you know that uh, and that you're aware that I feel that way. Um, I, I, I spend part of my morning praying in advance for everyone who will tune in. And that's because God has already tilled the soil like out there in the world. God already knows who's going to be listening. God knows exactly what you're dealing with today. Um, He knows you in ways that I obviously never will. Even if I was your literal best friend in all the world, I am never going to know you as well as uh, as as well as the Creator knows you, as well as the one who has redeemed you knows you, as well as the one whose spirit right now animates your life knows you. Like you are known fully, and to be known fully can be like terrifying if we're trying to hide things from God. But um, but the flip side of that is to be fully known is like the greatest thing any of us could ever imagine. Like to know that He knows us. So. Although I do not know everything that God knows about what you're dealing with today, I do trust that by the power of his Holy Spirit, he has already tilled the soil between us so that what we can sow here is not only peace, but his word um, and, and really the, the, the cultural good that God wants to do today in and through us and in and through the relationship that we have through this program. So just wanted to say thank you in advance for including me in your day. So where in the Word are you today? Um, I am actually going to spend several weeks in Ephesians chapter 6 because that's my focus for the first half of Lent. If you don't yet have a Lenten plan, Lent starts on Ash Wednesday, which is two days from now. Uh, So it's not too late to get a Lent plan together, but time is short. So there you go. Uh, It's a good good opportunity for you to think about what you're going to do during Lent to maybe um, draw the Word of God more closely into the the daily warp and woof of your life. Maybe you want to take on a new commitment for five minutes of concentrated prayer or some spiritual discipline like, well, I don't know, the one I'm going to do. Put on the full armor of God intentionally, consciously every single day, like actually work your way, walk your way through Ephesians 6 every day during the season of Lent. So there you go. So it's an idea. Um, I am also in Romans chapter 1. Uh, we are in the church that I attend uh, working our way through Romans, you know, when I say working our way, we've uh, we've been in it for a few weeks and we're still in chapter one. So it'll tell you how uh, methodically we work through such things. And um, and so I just commend to you, if you've not recently read Romans chapter one, um, I want to encourage you to do so. I want to encourage you to read Romans chapter one and reflect on the plain meaning of the words. The plain meaning of the words. Um, and there's a few phrases in uh, in the second half of the chapter that I would encourage you to like really consider. 
what what is Paul talking about when he is talking about the wrath of God? What what is what is that? Is that a real thing? And if that's a real thing, we need to know what that real thing is and what its remedy is. So what is the wrath of God? What does it mean to suppress the truth? That's a that's a phrase you're going to see more than once in here. A suppression of the truth or exchanging the truth of God for lies or exchanging the glory of the immortal God um, for something less. And then this phrase, which appears three times, God gave them over or God gave them up, depending on your translation. What, what does it mean for God to give us over or give us up to our own sinful inclinations? Um, I don't know about you. I, I don't want God to give me up or give me over to anything. I want my life in every way, in every way, even where he needs to scrutinize it and reveal the sin and burn it away like chaff. Um, or refine it, you know, with fire. I, I want, I want my life to be what God intends, and and so let me just invite you into Romans chapter one today, if you have not yet been in the Word of God. All right, we're going to take a brief break. When we come back, I'm going to actually do a little analysis of what Pete Buttigieg said last week at a CNN town hall. You may not have heard. Um, this back and forth conversation, but it is about the Christian faith. It is about the interpretation of scripture, and it is about how people of faith bring their faith to bear in the public square. So um, important for us to be able to hear and process and respond to these kinds of comments when they're made in public. And so when we come back, CNN's uh, an excerpt from CNN's town hall featuring Pete Buttigieg. We'll be right back. Okay, so last week, Pete Buttigieg in a CNN town hall responded to a question from uh, a person in the audience and then a follow-up question from the moderator of the town hall that um, are relevant to the kinds of conversations that we as Christians want to be engaged in in the public discourse today. So um, Paul's going to play one minute of this back and forth. So the first person you're going to hear uh, is a person in the audience at the CNN town hall who is asking candidate Pete Buttigieg a question, and then we're also going to listen to a portion of his answer. This is from the CNN town hall in Nevada last week. As a fellow Episcopalian and Christian, it is very frustrating to hear so much of the public discourse that assumes that being a Christian equals evangelical Christian conservatism. My Episcopalian belief in Christianity teaches me the values of scripture, tradition, and reason. I am a Democrat and a Christian. You can be both. How can you use your voice as president to share this viewpoint more broadly when the right thinks they own it? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm glad to be with a fellow Episcopalian. And uh, I agree. Look, it starts with sending the message that God does not belong to a political party. And by the way, you know, it's also very important to make clear that the presidency and the Constitution and, and my presidency will belong to people of every religion and of no religion equally. This is not about imposing my faith on anybody. Okay, so I want to um, look first. I want to first analyze the statement that was made by the person asking the question, and I want to analyze her question, and then I want to turn to Pete Buttigieg's comments. So 
Um, she leads off with a statement that the public discourse today assumes that being a Christian equals evangelical Christian conservatism. Is she right? Is she right? Is she right that in the American cultural conversations today that there is an assumption that when the word Christian is used in relationship to political discourse in particular, um, that the word Christian um, has been intentionally or unintentionally co-opted by one particular party or group, and that the assumption is in a conversation um, that the word Christian, particularly when we use it in public discourse, signals or equals evangelical Christian conservatism. And if so, what do those words mean? So this is an opportunity in a conversation with, the, with somebody in the culture to say, hey, did you, did you hear that, um, you know, that Pete Buttigieg uh, CNN town hall? First of all, you're going to know a lot simply by their reaction or response to that. Yes, they heard it. Yes, they didn't hear it. Where did they hear it? Did they hear it live? That's a different group of people that actually listen to the town hall live than those who have listened to it on social media or through some other media outlet since then. Um, th- it gives you the opportunity then to ask a question. Right. And to evaluate your own sense of this. What does it mean to say that you're a Christian or to self-identify as a Christian in today's political climate? What does it say about you when you immediately identify right off the bat, which this woman does more than once during her discourse? And Pete Buttigieg then affirms um, that they self-identify with one particular historically Christian denomination. Yes, I'm saying that that way intentionally. They identify themselves as Episcopalians. What does that even mean today? What does it mean to be an Episcopalian today? That's a good question to ask. Many faithful people and many faithful congregations have left the Episcopal Church, TEC, the Episcopal Church um, of the United States of America, and become Anglican. That's probably happened in your own community. This is an opportunity to talk about why somebody would still be an Episcopalian. That is a good conversation to have today in the culture. What makes a Christian a Christian? Another good conversation to have in the culture today. Not... not um, not just from a, a worldview conversation. This is an important conversation for you and I to have uh, in terms of how God views the answer to that question. Just because you say you're a Christian doesn't mean God views it that way. I, that is, it might be a staggering thing for you to hear this morning, but just because you self-identify as something doesn't necessarily make it true. Okay, this is about who God actually sees as covered with Christ, whom God actually knows in their heart of hearts, not not people who've just mouthed the words, Jesus is Lord, although that's essential. Scripture says that's essential. But believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead. That, that's the, that's the one-two punch there. Like, right? That's who's going to be saved. Not just those who say, Lord, Lord, as Jesus says, but those who he actually knows. I never knew you, Jesus says to some who, who said, Lord, Lord, and even did things, positive things in his name. He says, I didn't, I, I, I don't know who you are. So I think this is a a critical opportunity for each and every one of us to recognize that membership, having our name on a membership role at some church is not ultimately the question of whether or not we're going to be found as members of the body of Christ, the one that ultimately matters, the invisible one, the one that gets to, uh, to stand pure and blameless before the Father in, uh, in this wedding feast of the Lamb. Like that's, that's the membership role that matters, my friends. Um, and so these are important conversations to, to have today. The woman asking the question clearly values being an Episcopalian. Um, and she says that being Episcopalian and Christianity teaches her to value scripture, tradition, and reason. Good opportunity to pause and say, 
when I defy, when I self-identify with a particular denomination or a particular local church or particular expression of the church, what does that brand of church teach me in terms of the living of the Christian life? Um, she says that uh, being Episcopalian teaches her to value scripture, tradition, and reason. That would probably not be uh, the way I would describe how um, my local congregation teaches me to be a Christian. So how would you answer that question? She also then says, I'm a Democrat and a Christian. You can be both. She says uh, in her, you're going to hear in a follow-up question in just a second. That's actually where the CNN town hall moderator tees off on a conversation against what I would describe as Republicans who also identify as Christians. And so although Pete Buttigieg is going to say that God does not belong to a particular political party, he is going to entertain this question right here and right now from a person who states quite the opposite. She is stating that she is a Democrat and a Christian, and you can be both. And then they are both going to go on to agree in just a moment that you can't be a Christian and a Republican because you can't be a Christian and support Donald Trump. That, that is where this conversation is headed. And so that's why I lift it up today, because you, you can't just take what somebody says, like God doesn't belong to a political party, which is absolutely true. God does not belong to anyone. God does certainly not belong to a political party or any political expression. But they do all belong to God. They do all belong to God. And whether or not God is being rightly represented or grossly misrepresented in what people are saying in public about him matters, and it should matter to us. All right, we've got to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to deal with Pete Buttigieg's answer to the question. Okay, so we are talking about Pete Buttigieg's CNN town hall last week, and um, and he says in his answer to the initial question, he says that his 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 presidency will not belong um, to people of any any religion, but but people but two people of every religion or no religion of all, uh, no religion at all. And then he says this is not about me imposing my faith on anybody. Okay, so you have to pause when you hear something like that, and you have to say, really, okay, really, okay, let's let's pause there, Pete, really. Your presidency is not about imposing your faith on anybody. You're not about imposing your view that your personal experience and your personal desires trump the word of God by holding out that everyone must, by force of law, submit to an unscriptural view that a woman has the right to terminate a life that's created by God. I mean, he, he said just two weeks ago, there's really no room in, uh, in the Democratic Party for anybody that's pro-life. He says He basically said that to the, the, the pro-life leading Democrat out there who would describe herself as, by the way, both a Democrat and a Christian and says, you know, you can be both. He upholds that when it's an Episcopalian. He does not uphold it when it's an evangelical Christian. You'd have to, if you had him in front of you, you would need for him to explain that to you. And you should have his supporters explain that to you as well. How, how, can, how can that be? And, oh, Pete, you're not trying to impose your own personal view, um, your own personal worldview or faith upon us? Really? When, when in fact you are saying that, um, that by force of law, everyone must agree with you and set aside the truth that is expressed in God's created order and in his word that marriage should be between one man and one woman? Really, Pete? You are not seeking through the force of, of law to require people to impose your faith view on the rest of us? Oh, contraire. Like, you and I have to be prepared to listen well to what people say 
And then not to just get angry about it, but to actually say, now, seriously, you are imposing your faith on us. That, that is actually what you are doing. And, and, and this is where I would, I, I don't know why the, um, the freedom from religion people aren't screaming mad right now. Where are they? Where are the freedom from religion people? When he says that he intends to, um, you know, bring his view of, uh, of faith into the political sphere, he is saying what the freedom from religion people have been stomping mad about um, for years. All right. Uh, Pete Buttigieg's answer uh, continues. And, uh, and if you can roll that segment, Paul, that would be great. But I, I got to say, like you, I, I find uh, a message in Scripture that is very different from what the political right seems to want to talk about all the time. Uh, a lot about poverty, a lot about compassion, a lot about humility that I seek in my imperfect way to live up to. And that does have implications for how I will approach public office. And the time has come to send a message that people of faith have a choice. And if you belong to a Christian tradition or any moral or religious tradition that emphasizes making yourself useful to the oppressed and standing with and identifying with the prisoner and welcoming the stranger, Okay, let's just be clear here about what he's doing. He's talking about the message that he finds in Scripture, um, and he is talking uh, about the message that he finds there. And let's just ask ourselves, um, could we ultimately find different messages in Scripture? It is either the Word of God or it is not. It either means something or it does not. And so we are talking here about interpretation. Pete Buttigieg is going to go on in his answer to a question by the moderator of the CNN Town Hall, which I would just really encourage you, just go to YouTube and Google Buttigieg Town Hall and the word scripture, or yeah, that, that'll get you there. Um, and you can listen to this whole interview. But um, uh, he is going to go on to say that, you know, his, his interpretation is, his interpretation is, you, you and I are not open to private interpretation of scripture. That, that is not, that is not legit. And so um, we, we need to test what we think the scriptures say against what the whole corpus of the scriptures say. And we need to test it against the general revelation of God in creation. If you think that God is saying something in his word that's actually contrary to the way that he created and ordered things, you're wrong. You're wrong. And it's okay for you and I as Christians to say that to one another. That's actually what iron sharpening iron or holding one another accountable actually means. That we are able to to say to one another, you are not, uh, you know, a private interpretation of this just because it aligns with your particular proclivities or desires. You're rationalizing. This is, that's what's going on here. You are rationalizing to imagine that God has said something that God has not said. And there's probably no greater offense to God than to misrepresent him and to misrepresent his word. Um, It's one thing to misunderstand it. It's another thing to lead others to misunderstand it by misrepresenting it publicly. And so um, there's so much here that you and I have the opportunity to till in the conversations of the day. And so I want you to listen carefully when, um, when these candidates are answering questions. And I want you to ask yourself questions like, why is the Freedom From Religion Foundation not all over this guy? He is obviously saying that he, is, he intends, he absolutely intends to bring his private interpretation of Scripture, which he believes is the truth, to bear in his public life. He came right out and said, it's going to affect immigration policy. It's going to affect, I mean, it's going to, he went down the list, right? These are the ways that I am going to walk my faith out in public life as president of the United States. The Freedom From Religion Foundation would be all over an evangelical Christian who was saying the same thing. Why are they not all over Pete Buttigieg? That's a good question for you to ask yourself 
um, when we talk about motives. All right, that's all the time I've got to devote to that particular conversation. But I really do encourage you. These are the kinds of this is the kind of equipping I believe that we as Christians really need in the conversations of the day. We need to listen carefully to what is being said, and we need to not just pass over um, comments that are made and and say, oh, well, you know, that sounds pretty good. He's a very smooth talker, very smooth. He's a very competent politician. But it would be worth your time to 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 counter what he has said or to investigate what he has said and to say, is that really what Episcopalians have historically believed? When did Episcopalians depart from their understanding of life and their understanding of of marriage? Um, are there other people of Anglican tradition who then have parted ways with this kind of Episcopalian? Is there a reason that um, Pete Buttigieg was so surprised to encounter another Episcopalian? Well, yes, because there's very few of them in the United States of America today, um, under a million. So when we talk about the influence of, of a denomination historically and we talk about its contemporary influence, numbers actually do matter um, and private interpretation is not actually available to any of us. All right, we've got uh, more coming up next. Next up, I've got Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. He and I are going to talk about last night's, or well, this weekend's uh, Nevada caucus and the big winner, Bernie Sanders. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, we've had a number of conversations here over the course of time about socialism um, and why it is such a bad idea, how it has proven itself to be a very bad idea across human history. Um, And so I'm probably going to direct you from time to time over the coming weeks and months to conversations that we have had here with Bruce Ashford and Ben Johnson and Kenneth Barnes about socialism. You can find all those um, via the podcast at MyFaithRadio.com. Why bring this up today? Well, because a Democratic Socialist is actually surging among Democrats uh, in terms of the, the person now most likely to garner the Democratic nomination for the presidency of the United States. So I'm going to talk with Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College up next about the state of the Democratic race and Nevada's, um, wow, clear signaling that Bernie Sanders is the guy to beat. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Often parents wonder if they should shield their teen from hearing about their own mistakes. Because, of course, as moms and dads, we don't want the kids to say, well, you did it, Dad, so I can do it too. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Honesty with your teen takes guts. But teens need to hear that they're not the only ones struggling. They're looking for honest, authentic answers, emotionally, spiritually, physically, and intellectually. A parent's got to be prudent about what's shared and when, but the discussion about life choices and mistakes is important. It's part of your child's process of discovery and growth. Are there mistakes in your past that might help someone else make a better decision? Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. That's parentingtodaysteens.org. Joining me now, Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. You can follow him on uh, Twitter at CarringtonAM. Adam, welcome back. Glad to be back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So give us, um, we have not talked about it yet today on the show, so go ahead, give us the 
headline news from over the weekend um, and this morning related to Bernie Sanders and Nevada. Right. So on Saturday, another caucus was held and uh, the results actually came in. So it's a little better than Iowa, where uh, uh, instead of having a very close race like we saw in New Hampshire and in in, in Iowa, um, Bernie Sanders actually dominated the Nevada caucuses and won uh, by a commanding more than doubling margin than uh, those below him and uh, now looks to be the proverbial front runner going going forward. Uh, I mean, obviously some things can change, but it's very much looking like he is in the best position to be the Democratic nominee, something that was, I think, not considered common wisdom even maybe a month or two ago. Okay, so we could approach this conversation in two different directions. We could go in the direction of there is a burgeoning Never Sanders movement, right? People who um, I would say uh, would be likened unto the Never Trump effort. Um, And then there are people who are saying, um, all right, what the Democrats really need to do is embrace that this is their guy and they can essentially make what happened in 2016 a repeat, but on the other side of the aisle um, because there's loyalists and there are um, people on the fringe and Bernie's got a better social media thing going on. I mean, on and on and on. Um, Talk with us about which one of those two you see gaining some weight, because I think that we are going to see the Democrats move in one of those two directions, right? We're either going to see this like real rise of never Sanders effort, or we're just going to see them go all in. Yeah. And I'm seeing a lot of people in what you might call the democratic establishment, uh, really, uh, upset and worried and, and frustrated. Uh, they, they were including being frustrated at Sanders, uh, interview last night where he defended his support of Castro's Cuba, things like that. Mm-hmm. But I think to be honest, uh, the most likely scenario is the other one that the uh, uh, that Sanders will continue to uh, dominate because his coalition is the most united and fervent. That the others that could contest him, uh, not like in the 20, like in 2016, not enough of them will get out of the way. All of them will say, "Well, I should be the alternative, not the other person," and they'll continue to split the vote. And by the time it gets whittled down to two. I think it's most likely that he'll be the dominant nominee and that a lot of Democrats, even if they weren't originally on board with him, will jump on board themselves. And I think you're right. There's um, there. He's a high risk, high reward candidate for Democrats and someone who like President Trump. It's going to be a little hard to predict what he's going to do with the electorate. There's ways that I think he's going to attract people that Democrats normally wouldn't. But he also stands a real risk of repelling, especially, I would say, suburban voters that have been moving toward the GOP post uh, 2016. So I think there's I I think his candidacy, I'm not saying it's a good one. I'm not saying that I would support it, but I think it's going to be fascinating for American politics to see what that sets up. Okay, does it is anybody else just maybe other people just afraid to just come right out and say it, but I mean, he is an old rich white guy. And 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 how is it that the that the Democrats who you know seemingly are very very interested in everything that's the opposite of that. <clears throat> how is it that they have I mean they have genuinely like fallen in love with this guy and which is what Democrats do, right? This is not necessarily um, a, a thinking process that says socialism is actually bad and anti-American. And, oh, by the way, this guy's not a Democrat. 
Um, but they really have seem to have passionately fallen in love with him. So are we just sort of at the passion point in American politics and we've somehow completely gotten beyond the thinking part of it? We might be in the Messiah uh, complex mm. part of uh, American politics. And what I mean is I think we have raised the presidency, and this is left and right, to such a high degree that we expect saviors all the time. And you saw this, you know, with President Obama, where they said, you know, when he got elected, now the oceans will start to heal and there'll be cures for diseases, almost Christ-like qualities. And that's happened. And I think that's becoming way too common where we're we're, we're making these kind of figures into our saviors. Uh, I will say, though, also in addition, what, 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 what you brought up as far as him being an old white man, it's interesting, you know, uh, President Trump is an old, rich, white guy who the working class, uh, who might be white, but is certainly not rich, uh, uh, loves because he seems to be, uh, he, he has said he is on their side. He says he's looking out for their interests. It's very interesting that sometimes, despite all the identity politics that is out there, and I think the damage that that identity politics does, there's still a part of a lot of people that says, I'm looking for someone who's on my side and looking out for my interests, regardless of what they look and sound like, and that you might be seeing that a bit in the Democratic Party, ironically, given how dedicated they are to identity politics and how much this would seem to go against that grain. It's going to be a a stunning walk forward. Um, We're going to have to talk a lot about socialism and its ills, um, and we don't have time to really settle in on that topic today. Um, But, Adam, this is going to be something uh, that we are going to want to return to again and again and again so we can actually help people understand that ideas have consequences. And the election of a socialist to the office of the presidency of the United States would have very real consequences um, across everything where the executive branch has authority, which is really significant. Um, There's also down ballot considerations here. If if Bernie Sanders ends up being the uh, the Democrat nominee, it's, it's it's very difficult to predict, again, as you and I have just discussed, um, which direction that may go um, in terms of the enthusiasm of Democrats to get out and vote for him. Um, that has really serious down-ballot consequences. Just remind us that elections have consequences and that we're not just electing a president in 2020, but also Senate seats and House seats. Yes, electing a president has consequences, but electing uh, the rest of Congress, uh, the House and a third of the Senate, that will be up. And obviously, uh, there are at least some still restrictions on what a president can do based on whether he can get things through Congress or not. There also it affects down ballot races with uh, with states. And, And here's a really important point for 2020 that uh, in 2020, there's going to be uh, the, co- the the state legislatures that establish redistricting, which means how each state apportions its House districts is going to be this election. Uh, who controls state legislatures is going to be massive in determining the future of whether Congress tends to be more Republican or Democrat in its setup. And I would give one example of where where uh, elections matter down ballot, and that's Texas with uh, Ted Cruz running, uh, almost losing to Beto O'Rourke. Now, he Beto lost. But if you look at the enthusiasm he generated, Democrats had the best 
down ballot election they have had in the state of Texas in a generation. Won places they haven't won in 40 years. Uh, some they haven't even won before that. And so, so how much enthusiasm and how much a candidate brings people out, especially at the top of a ticket, can have massive consequences across the board. I, I it's, it's, uh, you know, I obviously. Uh, I don't want to make politics too big, and we've tried to talk about this, but as far as political consequences, uh, an election like 2020 is pretty up there as far as what it'll, how it'll affect down-ballot races. All right, I'm going to continue my conversation in just a moment with Professor Adam Carrington. He and I are going to pivot, and I'm going to, um, I'm going to ask him about this situation with the Justice Department and the proposal that the Justice Department um, be made independent of the president's uh, independent of the presidency in light of the Roger Stone situation. So we're going to get up to speed on all of that right after the break. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College, you can find him on Twitter at Carrington AM. Um, Adam, basically. Bring us up to speed for folks maybe who don't know um, what happened in the Roger Stone case and the proposal of the constitutional scholar who is asking that the Justice Department be made independent of the president. Yes. Uh, what, what happened was Roger Stone was a uh, confidant of the president's campaign. He was uh, someone who was affiliated uh, with it in various capacities and went to jail for uh, witness tampering, for lying to Congress, uh, and, and was convicted on all these charges. Um, what happened is the prosecutors in that case gave a, a the standard um, uh, recommendation to the judge for what his punishment should be, uh, the standard for the crimes he committed. And it looks as if what the president did is stepped in uh, there's some denial of this, but it seems like he stepped in and ordered uh, the Justice Department to uh, uh, lighten the sentence. And there's some debate about whether that was right or not, but uh, there's it, it looks like uh, the president interfering for a friend. And so what happened was a constitutional uh, scholar named Cass Sunstein came out and argued that, well, what we should consider doing is that's a problem, that's the president meddling in law enforcement is that we should try to make the Justice Department independent of the president, meaning that we would set up barriers where the president can't, as he can now, hire and fire uh, attorney generals, hire and fire other employees, and dictate to them how to run the Justice Department, which uh, brings up very fascinating issues of what, uh, you know, how do we maintain justice? What does the Constitution say about uh, the president's control of law enforcement? And uh, I think really brings up some, 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 some fascinating uh, ideas along those lines. I think the criminal justice reform conversation is more robust or ought to be more robust than it is for most people. Um, it is an ongoing conversation and white collar crimes get lumped into obviously nonviolent crime. Um, and we talk about the the sentencing conversations that are going on in relationship to criminal justice reform for nonviolent crimes. People need to pay attention to the fact that corruption related crimes are going to fall into that category. Um, and so I think that, you know, this is a specific instance where it looks as if having a friend in a high position of influence um, means that you are going to be treated differently in the justice system. That That's just fundamentally not American. 
Um, and yet that happens all the time. Yeah, and I would say there's two issues going on that kind of push against each other and, and, and show attention in our polity. Uh, it is absolutely the case that a fundamental concept of the rule of law is that the law is not a respecter of persons. It's only a respecter of crimes. You treat people differently based on what they've done, according to law, not based on who they are, who their friends are. I mean, this goes all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy, where it says uh, that the judges that get established by Moses shouldn't be a regarder of faces, uh, shouldn't you know give partiality. Uh, at the same time, we what we want is a government of the people, and we have a, 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 a we have the president placed as the head law enforcement officer. His constitutional task is to make sure that the laws are faithfully executed, including prosecutions. And I think this is where um, the the separation of powers really says. I think that the president should be in control of the Justice Department, but it says that it matters a lot the character of the person occupying that office, because they should be uh, not doing it for their own good, but they should be uh, equally applying the law for the sake of the American people. And that's where you have this interesting tension between the Constitution's requirements, but also the need that you can't, uh, you can't not have men of character operating that office. That might have led us to a conversation about the um, the pardons issued by the president last week, but we and I probably don't have time to take that subject matter up in full. Um, it did occur to me when I was hearing all of this unfold that couldn't the president just have waited and then exercised his executive right to pardon the guy? Absolutely, and and that would have held uh, no constitution, not no constitutional questions, and surprised the- no one. Yeah, not a given previous pardons. Uh, the president's only limitation constitutionally for the pardoning power is he can't pardon someone who's impeached. Any other crime he can. I, I think that it, it, it I, I think the president has his own reasons for having done it. I think you're right. That would have been the, maybe the more politically subtle way of doing it. But there's been a tradition for about a generation that the uh, since Watergate that the uh, president while he controls the executive branch and the Justice Department, he tries not to interfere with particular cases, but more tries to set basic standards for how he thinks the law should operate. And it's because there's tr- there's supposed to be a, a a fairness to how it operates, a fairness to how it is apl- the law is applied. Um, so this is this is bringing those sorts of questions up all over again. Adam Carrington, thank you so much, as always, for joining us, um, helping us understand what is happening uh, at the national level, at the intersection of not just politics and religion, but the law and the Constitution. Thank you. uh, Thank you so much. We look forward to our next conversation with you. That's Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. You can follow him on Twitter at Carrington AM. Thank you, sir. Thank you. We'll be right back. All right. Our listening community here at Mornings with Carmen includes a lot of people. And um, from time to time, right, listeners reach out and they ask for um, specific prayers. And so I'm going to invite you right now um, as somebody who has a a sister listening. Her name is Lori. um, And she's our sister in Christ. And she's asking us to pray. And so wherever you are, whatever you're doing right now, whatever environment you're in. Now, if you're driving, don't close your eyes. Like, right. Open eyed prayer is totally legit. So 
you know, if you're in a in a place in space where it's not safe to close your eyes, maybe you're on a treadmill, don't close your eyes there either. I think that's unsafe. Okay, there you go. Now, with all of that said, we're going to pray now for Lori. Um, her dad passed away after a sudden and unexpected illness, and today is the wake, and tomorrow is the funeral, and she has asked us as her community of faith to pray with her. So, Father God, um, you know Lori. Um, you know her intimately. You know this family. You know the circumstances of grief in which they walk today. Um, Father, we as Christians do not uh, do not grieve as the world grieves. The world has no hope, but we have hope in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, um, we commit Lori's dad to you. We commit this entire process to you, this opportunity to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ publicly. Um, and, and, Father, we ask your tender mercies upon this family as they walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Let them fear no evil. Let them feel your active presence with them. Um, and, and Father, let this somehow be an opportunity to bring you glory, um, acknowledging that Jesus Christ has triumphed over the grave. So we lift up our sister Lori as a part of the Faith Radio listening community this morning. Ask your tender mercies upon this family um, as they walk together through this grief. Amen. Uh, friends, we've got a whole nother hour uh, up next. And so let me just encourage you, if you don't yet have a Lenten devotional plan, Lent starts just in a couple of days on Ash Wednesday. We want to invite you to join with us in some Lenten practices, particularly that of getting into the Word of God every day, um, putting on the full armor of God every day from Ephesians chapter 6, maybe using the 40 days of Lent to develop a new spiritual discipline. Don't just give something up. Take something on. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.